college is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Thank you for listening once again. And if this is your first time, thank you for tuning in. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll remember that it was the first lecture from Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos' course on Plato's Republic that we just wrapped up this summer. This week, we bring you the first lecture from Dr. Jared Stout's course on John Henry Newman's idea of a university. We hope you enjoy this snippet from the course, magnusinstitute.org, for more. So a lot of you expressed that you're pretty new to Newman. Um, and so that's where I wanted to hear, okay, how much of a background do you need uh, even about the life of Newman and his thought? And it sounds like that would be helpful. So Newman wrote about the development of doctrine throughout church history, but he lived that to some degree. <laughs> he had a great development within his own religious formation. He was born in London in 1801. And his dad, you know, was upper middle class banker. And so he sent him to what they call in England, the public schools and public schools in England are actually private schools. So um, like a private boarding school. And he received a really excellent classical education. You know, I kind of laughed that I've been involved in the classical education movement. And we say, yeah, I'm starting a classical school. And so, you know, the kids will learn a little bit of Latin. And, you know, Newman was like composing Latin and Greek poetry you know, when he was in like elementary school. Uh, yeah, he was classically educated. Uh, so from a very young age, you know, he uh, immersed himself into the classics. But he had his first religious conversion at the age of 15. And so he said up to that point, you know, he was from a, a Christian background, um, but it was actually through one of his teachers when he was at in the high school level that uh, helped guide him to what he called more of an evangelical conversion. And so Newman actually became influenced by Calvinist theology. And from that age, he, he actually believed that the, the Catholic church, um, well, and the Pope, the Pope was the antichrist, right? And so the Catholic church was the whore of Babylon and all, all that kind of thing that comes from the reformation and believed in Calvinist uh, theology. And so he came to Oxford then um, as a Calvinist and as an undergraduate, you know, what you have to do at Oxford is that, you know, you take uh, courses that they're lectures, but you're also being guided by a tutor at the same time. And so, you know, we're going to get into this over the course of the class, but there's actually two different layers of education at Oxford. And Newman was really big on this. You had the university and there were chairs at the university for professors to teach in particular subjects. But how did they teach? They would simply get up and, and they would read a, a very formal lecture that they would prepare. It's almost like they actually, most of the time, they would even publish their lectures as books. So you can imagine a very thick book that is being written by a professor and then read out loud. And, and that's what lectures were like. And so these young students sometimes, you know, had a hard time with that. And so they would also have tutors who, in the context of the college, they would be residents of a college, 
Um, they would be guided in their studies, and the, the tutors would often even tell them what lectures to attend uh, and would help them to prepare for exams. Actually, the British government got involved in, in, in um, the management of Oxford and bringing in outside examiners to make sure that the students were proficient to pass their exams. And Newman actually prepared so hard for his exams as a as he was a resident of Trinity College that he basically had a nervous breakdown. And, and he passed his exams, but below mark. So um, he was basically, you know, kind of, you could say passed, but with a negative mark uh, on his studies. And yet, despite that, um, one particular college really saw his promise, uh, Oriole College, and he was voted in, right? There were some additional exams you had to do if you wanted to continue your studies. We kind of think of this almost like a graduate student. So he was uh, admitted as a fellow of Oriole College, despite you know his, his bad previous undergrad exams. And he says that this is really where his intellectual life came alive. So kind of in during this, this period of graduate study. Um, and he initially was influenced by a group of, of teachers at Oriole who were called the Noetics. And they, they were actually a bit rationalist in their theology. And so Newman says he was kind of briefly taken into a more kind of rational and even liberal to some degree that is emphasizing reason even over revelation. Um, and so that helped to pull him out of Calvinism, but kind of left him a little bit unmoored, right, in this intellectual climate at Oxford. But he was then made a tutor. So, you know, I mentioned that the undergrads would have these tutors to guide them through their studies. And so after some additional studies at Oriel, he was then made a tutor there. Um, and this is really where he came into his own. And, and he was influenced by a fellow tutor named Frude, um, who was influenced by one of his teachers, uh, Keeble. And so these two figures, Keeble and Frude, are the ones who brought Newman into a more traditional Anglicanism. Um, and while he was a tutor, he was actually ordained a priest of the Anglican church, right? So as a fellow and then tutor at Oriel, he was actually ordained an Anglican clergy member. And so uh, while he was a young clergy member, he became a part of a more traditional movement um, to try to bring the Church of England back to its roots. Um, in the apostolic church and the church of the fathers. And so this was basically an Anglo-Catholic group, right? So he went from being a Calvinist to being influenced by this more rationalist or liberal theology um, to then becoming very much influenced by the, the church's history of theology. And this really set him on the trajectory that would eventually lead him to the Catholic church. But it would also cause a conflict within Oriel College, he was basically expelled as a tutor because of the conflict between this more traditional group that he was a part of and the more liberal uh, group that was in charge uh, of the college itself. But Newman actually had a bigger platform at Oxford. He became vicar of St. Mary's. And so he was basically the priest over um, the parish, the, the main parish for university students. And somebody mentioned his plain and parochial sermons. Those are the sermons he gave at St. Mary's. 
and they were highly influential. Newman was very soft-spoken, but he in St. Mary's, the church would be packed by undergraduate students hanging on his every word, listening very carefully uh, you know, to Newman's intonation. And, and Newman was a great orator. I mean, people recognize that even who aren't Catholic, who aren't Christian. You know, Newman is taught um, in English classes, especially those focused on uh, Victorian prose. And so Newman, hands down, was was a great orator. And beyond even his sermons at St. Mary's, he gave what were called university sermons, where the whole university would officially be gathered together to hear sermons. And that goes back even to the Middle Ages. Medieval professors gathered for disputations for sermons, and then they would conduct their own lecturing. But those were the three major duties of university teachers, to preach, to dispute, and to lecture. And it was actually those university sermons that formed the basis of my own master's uh, work on faith and Newman. They were on the relationship between faith and reason. But going back to that conflict that Newman had at Oriel College, he became a key figure in what was called the Tractarian Movement. Newman wrote the first of, of what became many tracts written by different authors called the Tracts of the Times. And they were a rallying cry to the Church of England to reconnect to its lost Catholic traditions. And so over the course of a number of years, um, Newman wrote many of these tracts. Uh, which culminated in the infamous Tract 90, in which he said the 35 articles, which were the articles of belief of the Anglican Church, could actually be interpreted um, in a Catholic sense, that, that they didn't actually exclude Catholic belief, but only certain exaggerations of Catholic belief. And for that tract, Newman was disciplined and silenced by his bishop. And so he, he ended up retiring to uh, a smaller church that was dependent on St. Mary's out in the country at Littlemore. Um, and eventually he just resigned uh, his position at St. Mary's altogether um, and then had to resign his fellowship at Oriel. Um, in, in 1845, so he was 44 years old, he made the decision after kind of seeing that the, the Tractarian movement being dead-ended to become a Catholic. And at that point, he actually had very little contact with Catholics. Um, he met some um, during his, his very influential Mediterranean travels, um, in which he actually saw Catholic worship for the first time um, and encountered the future Cardinal Wiseman in Rome. Uh, but he really was venturing into the unknown. His life was a life based in Oxford. And his vision of university life really revolved around relationships. So like th those relationships with his fellow tutors and with his students, it was very much a communal pursuit of the truth that would really shape one's life and form the basis of a strong community, which we saw both at Oriel College, but then also within his parish at St. Mary's in the little monastery that he formed at Littlemore before he became Catholic. And I think it's for those reasons that when he did then go to Rome to study to become a priest, he was ordained a couple of years after his conversion, he chose to become an oratorian. And uh, that was the order founded by St. Philip Neri. Neri was the apostle of Rome, right? Not of the Indies, not of the Americas. St. Philip Neri came to Rome and established a center there. 
and mentored people in one place, formed relationships with them, um, and, and really engaged in that interpersonal communion that was so important in Newman's own life um, and work. And so he took that back with him to England. He was actually uh, given the blessing of the Pope to bring the Oratarians to England for the first time. And so he settled down in Birmingham, originally at the, the, the Maryvale location, where I, I know many people who have studied there and gotten degrees there. But it, it was really when he was a fresh convert, just kind of settled in Birmingham, that he received a very unusual call uh, from the, the future uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Dublin, uh, Paul Cullen. Um, who was not a cardinal yet, but he was already the apostolic delegate. So the Pope basically put him in charge of the Church of Ireland. And, you know, if you've ever been to Ireland, you know that Catholic churches there are pretty new. Um, They were only built in the 19th century. And all the old medieval churches are, for the most part, owned by the Anglican Church of Ireland. Uh, Because Catholics... Um, only received legal emancipation in the British Isles in 1829, right? So Newman's conversion was 1845. Catholics were only newly emancipated. So he, you could imagine his conversion and his kind of fallout with all his old friends at, at Oxford when he was becoming part of a scorned group. And there was deep anti-Catholic prejudice um, in England at the time. I mean, longstanding uh, prejudice. And so only after 1829 could Catholics in Ireland build their own churches um, and found their own schools. Um, And so there actually had never been a full-fledged university, uh, Catholic university in Ireland. There was an attempt in the 14th century to start a university in Dublin, but it failed. And so Newman was being called to do something pretty amazing, but surprising that here he is a fresh convert. He's English. You can imagine that maybe the, the English and Irish didn't get along at that, at that time because the English had basically colonized Ireland and made the Irish to be serfs. And then they finally have legal emancipation. They can finally start their own schools. And Archbishop Collins says, we're going to tap an Englishman. To, to be the founder of this university. And there was some animosity about that. That actually made people uh, pretty uncomfortable. And it did make things difficult for Newman. And Colin ultimately wasn't happy about the way that Newman set up the school. Newman wasn't fired or anything, and Colin didn't even want him to resign when he did. Um, but Newman really wanted to have a lot of laity involved in the university that he was founding, um, he did not want the university to to kind of be like a seminary and even to have that feel. He wanted it to be open. Um, he wanted the students to engage in recreation and to, and to have freedom. Uh, and that made some people um, in the the kind of newly freed uh, church, Catholic church in Ireland, uh, uncomfortable. So it was a very difficult project. And Newman basically saw it as a failure, right? So we're, we're reading the, the glorious fruits of, of his what he saw to be a somewhat futile uh, enterprise to to start a a new university in Ireland. Uh, That school is still going. Um, It's now called the University College Dublin. Um, So it was called the Catholic University of Ireland when he founded it, but it it is still there. Uh, But it wasn't what Newman really wanted it to be. 
Um, and so it never fully lived up even to the ideals that we're going to be uh, reading about in the book. So Newman went back to Birmingham uh, pretty discouraged. And it's it's when he goes back that he founds um, the oratory school there um, that he will oversee for, for the rest of his life. And Newman's life as a Catholic was actually fairly quiet. I mean, he got involved in some public disputes, which led to the writing of the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, the kind of the defense of his conversion. He got involved in, in another kind of public debate about the first Vatican Council and papal infallibility and how that should be interpreted, because people in England thought that meant that Catholics had to just believe whatever the Pope said about anything and would be bound to him and even all political decisions, right? And so Newman said, no, right? That That's not what this is really about with his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk. But even in the, ch- the Catholic Church in England, Newman was somewhat marginal, um, and, and butted heads with the power to be, the powers to be. And so um, he was vindicated by being made a cardinal towards the end of his life in 1879. I mean, he died in 1890, right? So he was a cardinal for, you know, a little more than 10 years at the very end of his life. Uh, but he led a somewhat retired life in the sense that he was actually never ordained a bishop, right? So he, he didn't have like a large pastoral assignment. Um, he never got involved in university life after, again after he left uh, Dublin. He followed the example of St. Philip Neri, right? To, to be placed in one particular spot in Birmingham where he had his oratory church, his oratory school. He very much invested in the relationships with his fellow oratorians, with his students, with the community there. Um, and I think that's something very beautiful uh, about Newman's own uh, approach uh, to education. Okay, so that's just a little bit of a background about who Newman is and his involvement with education. And that comes out a little bit in our reading. All right, so I don't know uh, if you got the recommended Clooney uh, edition. Uh, part of the reason why this is recommended, and, and this was recommended even bef- by uh, AMI bef- before I agreed to teach the class, but it does have the introduction by uh, my mentor who taught me Newman, uh, Don Briel. And Don founded the, the program of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas, where I got my uh, undergrad and master's degrees, which I think in many ways was an attempt to live out Newman's ideals within, it's almost was like a mini college, right? Within the university that my alma mater, the University of St. Thomas has gone off the deep end, unfortunately, right? But the the Catholic studies program was an enclave to try to give us the the kind of experience that Newman uh, wrote about in the idea of a university uh, and to really root us more deeply in the Catholic tradition in general. But there's another thing that I wanted to mention about this edition. If you have it, I think this is very helpful um, that if you look towards the back here, starting at page uh, 401, there is a, a good number of notes. So they are both historical notes. There's translations when Newman has, you know, Latin or sometimes other languages uh, that are used in the text. Um, and so there's definitely some points that I think would be obscure uh, without the, those notes. So you, you might even want to consider getting this edition for that reason, um, if you don't have a copy. 
I, I will also be giving some other recommendations because as I mentioned, th- these are lectures that Newman gave um, to the community, the university community in Dublin. But even while he was doing that, he was also writing historical sketches about the whole history of universities. And so they were published as volume three of Newman's historical sketches. Uh, you can find those online at a great website. I'm going to put it in the chat box here, newmanreader.org, which is a really phenomenal resource uh, for Newman. And you can find all of his published works there, um, even some of his letters and diaries and other even secondary sources about Newman. Um, and then there's some other uh, great works that Newman wrote about education as well. Um, some of them are shorter, um, like his essay on the, the the mission of the Benedictines and the Benedictine schools, the Tamworth reading room, but also a really important sermon. So there, there's one sermon in particular, uh, which he gave for the Feast of St. Monica, um, which is included in a, a different volume um, of his sermons. Uh, the ones that I mentioned previously were Anglican sermons, right? But uh, I'm going to give a link to that. So that is at least one additional uh, writing of his on education that I want to make sure that that we talk about um, in the class. So I will be sending a link to that one and maybe just some uh, some other suggestions uh, as well uh, based on some of the other works that I mentioned. Now, I was trying to give just a very general kind of thrust of, of Newman's life. Uh, but what really drove his conversion from the Anglican Church into the Catholic Church was his realization that what he was trying to do with the Tractarian movement, which was to reintegrate the Anglican Church into the great Catholic tradition, was not possible. Because at a certain point, the Anglican Church had really veered off um, from the great tradition of the church. And so he came to the realization that the Church of the Apostles is the Catholic Church. And in fact, the Church of England um, deviated from the apostolic tradition. Uh, So that was really the crux of of his own, um, I would say, crisis within the Anglican Church. But to go to the Catholic Church, he still needed more. Okay, uh, it's one thing to kind of recognize within the apostolic church certain beliefs. But what about what I see in the Catholic Church right now? Is there really a direct connection uh, between the apostles and the church fathers and Catholic devotion to Mary or the way that Catholics articulate the authority of the papacy? And so Newman wrote a great work, and it's read by many converts, um, his essay on the development of Christian doctrine. So a lot of times when people say that they've read Newman, I hear that that that's the work that they've read. Or also his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which I mentioned briefly, described his life all the way up to his conversion. And one of the things that Newman points out in the Apologia um, is that without authority, that the integrity of God's revelation would be jeopardized. There would be no way simply based on you know, individual opinion um, or argumentation to be able to ascertain what God had truly revealed and what he did not, and what was a true development and what was not a true development. And so in addition to historical continuity, Newman also recognized the need for authority um, instituted by Christ himself in the church 
which was fundamentally lacking in Protestantism. And so he had the famous phrase in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Okay, so I just wanted to, to you know, make sure that we kind of hit that central aspect of Newman's conversion. But now we're going to get into the first half of Newman's idea of a university, because if you look at the table of contents, there really are two very distinct works within this one book. Um, the first section, the first half is on university teaching, and it actually is comprised of a bunch of discourses that Newman had published previously as a standalone volume, um, which were on the aims and principles of education. One of those discourses dropped out. So I'm actually going to give you a link to that lost discourse that didn't uh, make it in, into this volume. And when you look at the second half, it was on university subjects. So we're kind of moving from an overall view of the nature of the university to looking at what is taught in particular uh, within the university curriculum. So uh, our reading for today was on the preface and then the introductory discourse. Um, and the preface gives us the most meat, I think, because it is an overview of what he is arguing as a whole uh, within the book. And so I just want to, to start with a discussion of how that opens. So if, if you have this volume, it's on page five. Uh, but if you are just kind of reading along from a different version, this is just the very beginning of the preface itself. So Newman begins. The view taken of a university in these discourses is the following that it is a place of teaching universal knowledge. This implies that its object is, on the one hand, intellectual, not moral. Right? We want to un unpack that more. And, on the other hand, that it is the diffusion and extension of knowledge rather than the advancement. If its object were scientific and philosophical discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. If religious training, I do not see how it can be the seat of literature and science. Such is a university in its essence and independently of its relation to the church. Actually, you know what? I'm going to stop there because I, I want to come back to that next paragraph, but I just want to 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 sit on that first paragraph that the purpose of the university is to teach universal knowledge to offer intellectual formation not moral formation to diffuse knowledge rather than to advance it right so he's saying that the primary purpose of a university is not research and that would be news to a lot of universities in the united states Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. What do you think about that first paragraph, about what Newman is saying about the university in its essence? Mm, uh, it seems to me like um, it's totally aimed to the students because it's about <clears throat> it's not about being a professor and having like an excellent position. It's about diffusing knowledge 
it's not about the more it's, it's about forming intellectually so it seems to me like it's um it's for the students it's not it's not a profession yeah exactly and in that first discourse that we read the introductory one uh, he's, he says that. He says, why did Pope Pius IX think that it was important that Ireland has a Catholic university? Well, for the students, right? You know, not that Ireland should have this place of research, right? But, you know, it's for the benefits of the students themselves. So that that's a big point, that a university should be student-focused and that it is diffusing knowledge to them for their intellectual formation. And it, now, of course, this is only one paragraph, but it's a rich paragraph. Anything else? I mean, that could be controversial in particular to say that it's intellectual formation and not moral formation. But did any was anybody taken aback by that? Well, I was thinking of um uh you know Aristotle who would talk about you know moral is is practical wisdom, right? So mm-hmm. it's morality is we tend to think of morality purely in terms of, you know, these are the dictates of what you can or cannot do. Right. But, you know, in the broader sense of morality as what you should do under particular circumstances, um, which at times we might not think of that as morality, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the right and the wrong that will lead to happiness and such. Um, what, what I find interesting is that, I mean, so when you, when you go further and even in the first discourse, when he's talking about um, University of Education, he does talk very much in terms of intellectual formation, which is is more of a leading to a way of thinking, a, a, a process, uh, a way of coming at things. And to me, I distinguish that very much from knowledge. So I just I find it kind of interesting that he he starts by saying it's teaching university universal knowledge, but then he says it's intellectual, not moral. And goes into, um, you know, all of the the purposes, all of the value of education and forming the mind. Well, that's to me, that's much more than teaching knowledge, right? You know, the even in the in the is in Proverbs or I don't remember which, but there's you know one of the Proverbs where they talk about knowledge and wisdom and and the, the hierarchy of things and and. Um, wisdom and the formation of the of the mind and the intellectual ability is is not quite the same so to me i actually find that a little bit confusing Mm -hmm. i think he does mean formation of the mind but when he says teaching universal knowledge that actually seems to me a little bit limiting on what he he actually thinks it's supposed to do yes and so i i it's a very important point because if you look at what he means by universal knowledge it means that a university doesn't teach just one area of human life to say, you know, we're just going to have an arts program. Okay. But an arts program cannot be a university or a trade school cannot be a university um, because a university treats the whole of knowledge. Now, if students come to the university for knowledge, then it is a question of, well, how do they really gain that knowledge? What is the way that they come to know things about human life uh, and about the world? And I think this is where Newman would say, as they are acquiring that knowledge in the right way, they are gaining an intellectual formation. Uh, 
because someone who simply looks up information on Wikipedia, you know, for instance, um, would not actually have the formation of learning that in the context of a university, right? And you could actually say, well, I learned about the Battle of Gettysburg at university. And somebody could say, oh, well, I read that on Wikipedia. Um, and then I think that the, the process of, say, reading a text and discussing it with a professor and writing a paper about it, all of that will form a kind of discipline in thinking and expression that would not simply happen if the end was only to gain a piece of information, right? But on the other hand, you could say, well, how do you really gain intellectual formation? Is it just thinking? And we say, no, it's thinking about something, right? You know, it's it, you, there has to be some object to the thinking, and that is the knowledge that is gained um, in, in university teaching. And I, I think the distinction that you made earlier about intellectual versus practical formation is also very important because you might think, oh, well, Newman thinks that, therefore, the university shouldn't teach about morality. Well, that's not what he said, right? If you had a class on the virtues, would that be intellectual formation or moral formation? It's intellectual, right? Because you're learning about the virtues. It's actually not moral formation. What does he mean by moral formation? I mean, that's probably something good to talk about here, right? What, what do you think it means by that? So I actually just have a question still about that, like the distinction he's drawing between the university being for intellectual formation versus moral formation. Mm -hmm. um, and this might get at your question, because a few pages later, he uses this term moral disability. Um, but he connects the idea of a moral disability to the fact that Catholic students in Ireland don't have access to this kind of education as Catholic mm -hmm. students. And that really confused me because I thought that the purpose of the university was for intellectual formation, not moral mm -hmm. formation, yet mm -hmm. the Catholic students in Ireland have a moral disability because they don't have access to yeah. higher education. And then a few pages later, he uses the language of evil, that people are subjected to everyday evils because people do not have intellectual formation, um, right. or rather people lack these intellectual virtues. Um, so is is there, <laughs> I'm trying to like work through what that means, that you could have a moral yeah. disability because you lack intellectual formation, but intellectual formation is not the same thing as moral formation. So is it that you acquire one as you're acquiring the, acquiring the other? Is there like, I, I don't think there, I don't think that's necessarily true though, but yeah. So uh, th this is a really important question. It's one of the stickiest in the book, I think, because some people think that, well, Newman said it's about intellectual formation and therefore moral formation doesn't matter. And he, he's not saying that at all. Right. Uh, so I, I think it has to do with what he thinks the university is about, right? The university is a place to come to learn knowledge about things. And in that learning of knowledge, as we were just saying, that, that the mind would itself take on certain dispositions and habits of thinking. And based on the quotes that you just mentioned, well, maybe intellectual virtues are pretty important for the moral life. So maybe there's a connection, right? Uh, so this, this brings me back to that question. What do you think he means by moral formation? Learning about virtue is intellectual formation. Right, so learning what a good life is is intellectual formation, 
And so why is it that the university would not give moral formation then? Anybody have thoughts on that? What do, what do you think the distinction is here? Patrick pointed us to that a little bit already, but how do you gain moral formation and why is that not the purview of the university? Moral form- formation is habitual. It's it's actions. It's not intellect. So the intellect should be leading. If you have prudence, you the prudence leads you to right action. But having knowledge per se is not is not prudence. Prudence is how to actually enact with all your passions and your will. You know, enact the the various virtues. So it's, it is important to learn about the virtues mm-hmm. um, intellectually in order to become uh, habitual. Now, I'm not sure that he doesn't think that the role of a university will actually be somewhat moral. I mean, if you have tutors who are dealing with you on a personal level, like the lecture, you know, you're not going to get any moral education from from, uh, your lectures. You know, you're going to get maybe a knowledge of what the virtues are and so on. Yeah, which is still with your interaction with your tutor. On the other hand, you may not explicitly, but he's also, I think, I don't know, um, uh, you know, if the university had sort of an in parental locus or what is it, you know, in the in the in the place of parents, you know, uh, role to play as well. So so, you know, when kids get out of line, you have to, you know, discipline them, you have to keep them in order. And, and you know, that's all part of a moral formation. Um, but it's not the end of a university education. I mean, it is, it's part of what's just necessary for the community to survive, right? I mean, you can't right. have kids jumping off of buildings and, you know, doing whatever. <laughs> I mean, uh, you, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, just, uh, so, so anyway, I guess, I guess the distinction is, is between what the purpose of the education itself is and the difference between what actual, you know, more, Moral education is actually practical. I mean, it is it is getting it into your bones, not just getting it into your intellect. Yeah. Uh, now, one clarification, because you mentioned the tutor. Yeah. Well, for, for Newman, the tutor resides where? In the house In where the, you Yeah, the, the college, right? And so uh, we would think, well, in, in America, we'd say college, university. I guess university is just a bigger college. We, we don't use those terms in the same way. Um, and so what Newman is saying is that attending lectures at the university is for gaining knowledge. And if you go to a lecture on the virtues, you know, w- will the professor be responsible for you living the virtues by the end of that class? No, right? He just wants to make sure you understand what the, what the virtues are. Does that mean that university students should not be receiving moral formation from someone? Newman says, yeah, they need it, but it's not the job of the professors. It's the job of other people in conjunction with the university. And this is actually a big problem because I would say like even Catholic colleges in the U.S., most of them, not those on the Newman Guide, but would say, yeah, university is just about intellectual or practical formation. We don't give moral formation. And so there's no moral formation at all, you know? And then Newman would be like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not Alex. Looks like you want to jump in here. So 
Go ahead. Yeah, I would just say, I think you're right, Todd. Uh, when, when Newman says it's not the, he's basically saying moral formation is not the object. It's not the proper object, but it will happen in the course of the habituation of the life of the mind in a community. And I think this is, I think this is nicely related to, um, there's a, there's an either or that Newman sets up, uh, later on whether you would want a, uh, a a kind of perfect education that wasn't in community, almost like a, a total distance learning and a, and a certification that you did on your own. Or if you just had students in a, in a college with no tutor and no exams, uh, he'd, he'd take the latter because that moral, because mm -hmm. you'd still get the intellectual habituation, uh, but you'd also have the community and its moral cohesiveness. Uh, where each member is growing in all aspects of moral and intellectual and religious um, perfection at the, at the same time, but the proper object is the intellectual. Yeah, and I think that's what we're really lacking. You know, um, I was doing a, a podcast before this class started um, with John Johnson, and he was saying, where do you see Newman's ideal being lived out? And I was like, um, nowhere, right? In the sense that you don't see his vision of the way that the university and the college would work together. And even if a college or university has a robust, you know, like residential life program, that's good, but it's not what Newman envisioned, right? For the college and the role of the tutor within the college. Uh, when I was at the University of Mary, we started a tutorial program, but I mean, it was only just a little glimpse uh, of the tutorial, not the way that that Newman really saw it as playing that complementary role to the university. Let's read the next paragraph because I think this will help resolve this difficulty. Such is a university in its essence, right? So its essence is to teach universal knowledge according to Newman and independently of its relation to the church. But practically speaking, it cannot fulfill its object duly, such as I've described it, without the church's assistance. Or, to use the theological term, the church is necessary for its integrity. Not that its main characters are changed by this incorporation. That is, the relationship to the church doesn't change what it means to be a professor, for instance. That's what he means by the characters here. It still has the office of intellectual education, but the church steadies it in the performance of that office. What do you think that adds to that first paragraph, right? Because if we just kind of stopped at the first one, you'd be like, okay, the church, the, the university doesn't give moral formation, but it seems necessary. How do you think this completes the picture? I'm like, it seems like um, the intellectual needs a guide, you know, some guidance. So someone, yeah, the, the university gives the intellectual formation. Who gives the moral formation? I think that's that's what he's saying here, right? Is that, and, it's, and, and I should clarify because what he's saying here is not just that the church can offer moral formation to students because that would be too little. He's actually saying 
that through the church's moral and spiritual life, the pursuit of truth can actually come to its conclusion. That there will be a greater integrity in what the university properly aims to do, but will also get what is lacking from the university to complement it. Does that make sense? Any anything, any other aspects of this you want to draw out? Yeah. It, it sounds yeah. like and like it also um, that steadiness and that authority frees in some way those professors as well, right? So that yeah. they are tr- truly free. Um, and truly can do the what it is that they do. It provides for them a, a security and a skeletal framework, right? Um, so that they can that paradox of the of the freedom of the walls, right? And then follows through the habits in the smaller community that the people living in the colleges. It it that what's learned in the classroom is an integrated integrity, integrated into the day-to-day life as one makes decisions about how one lives based on what one has learned mm-hmm. about the world and tries things out and makes mistakes and, and has a community in which to, to live that and develop. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's not hard to think about what a university looks like without the church, <laughs> but let's draw that out. I mean, Newman says that the university needs the church for its integrity. Why? And, and yeah, go ahead. No, I just, um, I like to think of this because I, we all have a kind of a preconceived notion of education, whatever that might be. Right. And when we think of Catholic education, we immediately think of all the moral and the spiritual aspects of it. Like, well, that's just natural to it. But I like to think of taking an analogy and thinking of it like in the, in the case of medicine, right? What is medicine in its essence? Right. Medicine in its essence would be, um, you know, the care for the physical health of the body. Right. The care for the person. And that's what that's what it does. That's what it's for. Just like education is for the intellectual development. But um, medicine requires a, a moral perspective. Right. So it requires a moral formation to do things ethically. But even beyond that, a really good medicine, the best medicine where you really are caring for the physical person requires an awareness that the person is integrally, you know, body, soul, mind, and all of those things have to be attended to. And so even though the essence of medicine is to care for the body, you have to be thinking about the moral aspects of the person and the moral health of the person, which can have severe effect right we've got lots of studies that show that people who are living bad moral lives it can it can have a severe effect on them in um psychologically and physically and in other ways yeah and so absolutely. so the the integrity of medicine depends not just on you know meeting the moral requirements of the church but but the the awareness that this is a person and not just a physical being, and all of that has to be integrated in order to do medicine better. Because if you were lacking and say an understanding of who the human person is, then it would undermine your own attempt to try to heal the body, right? And so we could think of the same thing with the teaching of knowledge, right? Without the guidance of the church, where where might that go wrong? I think that's 
that's part of what Newman's saying with the integrity that if you get rid of faith, will reason maintain its integrity? All right. I think that's one of the, the key aspects here. Um, and we can even think of, of medicine, right? Is medicine just information or is there a formation of mind that, that is needed even there? I had a principal tell me once, why, why do you keep talking about wisdom? You know, my nurse doesn't need wisdom. She just needs to know how to do the job. And I said, well, if your nurse lacks wisdom, she might kill you. <laughs> so, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that claim that, you know, the church certainly offers moral and spiritual formation. But Newman goes farther than that to say that the church is needed for the integrity of the university's own task. <clears throat> Excuse me. What do you think about that? How will the university's task of imparting universal knowledge be undermined without the church? Like I said, it shouldn't be too hard to, to look around and see yeah. that either. <laughs> I I think that there's, if I don't recall wrong, wrongly, you know, the, in, in the fall, you know, when Adam and Eve, they fell, they, but before the fall, actually, they, they supposedly had this uh, gift of integrity, right? And it meant that um, everything was in the right order and there was a kind of hierarchy, like the, the passions were not um, insubordinated. They were subordinated to the reason. So there's like a, this hierarchy that I think that it broke after the fall. And I don't know if maybe that's kind of the, the image Newman is using, like without the, the, the wisdom of the church, we lose the integrity of how all the subjects of the university have a proper place and there's a hierarchy. And just like Patrick said, um, if not, then one science might behave like it's the king or the queen when it's not. And it has to know its proper place and kind of submit to kind of greater knowledges. That's what I think. So giving a broader vision uh, of reality and, and that relates to what Denise put in the chat box here. I don't know if you want to say anything farther about that. Maybe not. I don't know. And feel free no. to jump in anybody here too. No, want. that's exactly what I okay. said. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the church has the ultimate truth and um, the the whole essence, the whole purpose of a university is the acquisition of knowledge in, in its reality of the truth. And when I look at truth, I think of truth in Jesus Christ, uh, the ultimate truth. And uh, the whole aim of education and Catholic education is that transcendence to the truth. So... Um, that that faith and reason they balance each other and they um they harmonize or they should harmonize and um anyway that's thank you add. <laughs> this connects to denise's point um don briel's introduction talked a bit about one of newman's homilies and like the line that really struck me in the homily was when newman pointed out that if you separate the church and the university, you end up with all of these competing influences. And I loved that he used the term influences because I think that's what I see in the modern university where different professors just become essentially influencers. Um, 
different disciplines, different professors will have different opinions and different sorts of influences over different students. And you can kind of select into who influences you, as opposed to there being this central unity of truth um, that all knowledge is supposed to point to. And I think that tends to undermine the belief in truth, like just an underlying belief in truth, like the fact that different disciplines, different professors will offer different perspectives to begin with. Um, But I think it also undermines the idea of there even being a unity of truth, even if it's not God, like there is, there is a certain unity to truth. And Newman's going to talk about that at length, right? That if God and the church are pushed out of the university, well, then it can't be what it is called to be. That is a place that teaches universal knowledge because some knowledge is being excluded, right? So we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about that. All right, I want to turn to pages 10 and 11. Um, And so if you are in a different version, this is still in the preface, uh, about, well, I'd say a little bit more than halfway through. Um, I want to look at, and this is even going back to the to the bottom of page nine, what Newman means when he talks about the culture of the intellect. That's a term from Cicero. Um, so the, the bottom of nine, he talks about that, but the quote I want to read is on the top of page 10, but it's in that same paragraph. So what are these advantages? So look for that paragraph if you have a different version. The end of that paragraph, it says... Okay, well, I'll read the whole sentence because it's hard to jump in. Our desideratum is not the manners and habits of gentlemen. These can be and are acquired in various other ways by good society, by foreign travel, by the innate grace and dignity of the Catholic mind. But the force, the steadiness, the comprehensiveness, and the versatility of intellect, the command over our own powers, the instinctive just estimate of things as they pass before us, which sometimes indeed is a natural gift, but commonly is not gained without much effort in the exercise of years. This is the real cultivation of mind. Right. So I think it's important just to kind of think about these points, right? That there is a kind of force and power of the intellect um, that studies it, that is, is comprehensive and, and versatile, that actually gives us command over our powers and, and we might think, therefore, might play into the moral life. The just estimate of things. Um, let's look on the next page. And so this is one, two, three paragraphs following that one on page 11 in the Cluny edition. When the intellect has once been properly trained and formed to have a connected view or grasp of things, it will display its powers with more or less effect according to its particular quality and capacity in the individual. In the case of most men, it makes itself felt in the good sense, sobriety of thought, reasonableness, candor, self-command, and steadiness of view, which characterize it. So between these two passages, I think we're starting to get an idea of the kind of intellectual formation that Newman thinks will happen 
for students as they are pursuing right this this study of knowledge. So what stands out to you here, right? You know, when you think of what is education for, what is university education for in particular? Uh, what do you think about that in regards to what Newman is saying in these two passages? Um, I'd say it's geared less towards um, being skilled in a profession, for example, and it's more about being a holistic whole being um, mm-hmm. under God as well. It's kind of part of just like a mind, body, spirit formation that sort of touches all areas of our life. So it's a fundamental point that it's not the ability to do something, but Newman is saying it's a cultivation of self, right? And in particular, yeah, it's to be, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, is much more human, right? To become human, Shauna says, and that's why yeah. we talk about studying the humanities, right? The humane learning to enrich our humanity. So a lot of times today, and, and, and Newman talks about this in the first discourse, actually, Everybody wants education to be useful, right? What are you going to do with it? And when you when you read this list, I mean, it it, it is useful, but but not in a practical sense, right? <laughs> but in, in the sense of, well, I, I'm actually able to live rightly, and that helps me in whatever I would do, anything, right? But that the goal is not to do something outside of myself. The goal is to be cultivated within myself. I'm not sure that this is entirely as unuseful as it used to be. Um, yeah. Good sense, sobriety of thought, reasonableness, candor, self-command. These aren't, these aren't readily traits that our society fosters at all. I mean, you know, it's, it's not as, we're a long way from this. You know? Perhaps we have a breakdown in education. Hmm. <laughs> Ooh, <Yeah. laughs> maybe, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm voting for this being, it makes a much better world, right? Yeah, absolutely. So even having these skills. is uh, Yeah. Why should we take time for the liberal arts, for humane learning? Right? You know, what is the purpose of this? Does it really matter? And I think Newman is saying, yeah, it does. It does matter. Something I, I skipped over, but this is, you know, we, we started reading in that one paragraph, what are these advantages? And the next paragraph is, this is the real cultivation of mind. But about six lines down, it says, it brings the mind into form, for the mind is like the body. Boys outgrow their shape and their strength. Their limbs have to be knit together, and their constitution needs tone. Mistaking animal spirits for vigor and overconfident in their health, ignorant what they can bear and how they can manage themselves, they are immoderate and extravagant and fall into sharp sicknesses. Sounds like my 16-year-old son. This is an emblem of their minds. At first, they have no principles laid down within them, true, (laughs) as a foundation for the intellect to build upon. They have no discriminating convictions and no grasp or consequences. And therefore they talk at random if they talk much and cannot help being flippant or what is emphatically called young. (laughs) They are merely dazzled by phenomena. And of course, Newman had no idea by all the phenomena that we're dazzled by instead of perceiving things as they are. 
What a powerful passage there. Yeah, I, can I speak to yeah. the the whole thing about gentlemen, right? Of course, he's talking yeah. about all male education at this time, right? But um, so you could say gentleman, lady, same idea. But he's, I've I've seen, I remember seeing a, a lecture that I don't remember who it was. It was a former president of Harvard University and, and basically extolling Newman and talking about Harvard as sort of the the epitome of Newman's thought, right? And he was going on about how Harvard was forming the gentleman that Newman, that was the the height of what Newman was calling for. And I, I, I see why it's, to me, it's a little confusing the way he, he kind of bounces back and forth a little bit. But the way I read this is he's not, the gentleman is sort of that base. He says, yes, you know, that someone coming out of having this kind of education is going to have those characteristics of the gentleman, right? Being, mm-hmm. being patient, being willing to listen, sort of all of those intellectual virtues that help someone to be a good intellectual or to, you know, be able to engage in some kind of dialogue. But, but he seems to also be saying that's not, that's not really, you know, the, what I'm really aiming for, right. That the purpose of education is to cultivate the mind, to be able to think reasonably and to have those, to be able to use that power of reasoning uh, effectively and not just to be the kind of person who has the the behaviors that lend to good dialogue, but actually to be someone who can truly think and and reason above what you know maybe the normal person. He talks later about viewiness, right? You know these people who have they're very articulate and they can talk about things and they can talk about just about anything, right? So they have some of that. What he's talking about, but. Um, ultimately, they're not necessarily very strong in their their th- their thought and able to really come to to rational conclusions. And it seems to me that that's ultimately what he's aiming for. Yeah. And so, I what he says in the passage we read is um, that we're not aiming at the manners and habits of gentlemen, right? So, not not simply to be able to you know, rub shoulders in polite society or or to have social graces. But perhaps what he's saying is that to be a true gentleman is to have the kind of refinement of mind that someone is really kind of chiseled into manhood and that that is not the ultimate goal of human life but that kind of refinement is the goal of the university and and once again and when newman says university he's thinking that that should exist alongside of the college right and so the college in newman's mind should be a very religious place and it should be a place where we're really aiming to be saints so what is the ultimate goal for Newman? It's not to stop at the quality of being a gentleman, but I think he's pushing on what that means, right? To, to truly be a gentleman, because it isn't, you know, the stereotype of the, you know, oh, the English gentleman, right? That's, we just want all of our students in Ireland to turn out like them, you know? No. <laughs> so I think he's beginning to tell us what he thinks 
that term really means. And it's not something superficial, right? It's not just the manners and habits on, on the outside. Um, so there's a couple of layers here, right? You know, he's telling us what the cultivation of the mind looks like. That's what he's aiming at. And I think he's saying that that's what a true gentleman would be. But because there needs to be a complementary formation from the church, we're ultimately looking even farther than that in this formation. Section you read sounds almost to me like the formation of prudence, which is an intellectual virtue, but it's also what gives form to the moral virtues. So that makes me think of like the complementarity of the church and the university right there. If the university can help build prudence, that would automatically assist the moral virtues as well. Yeah, I I think there's an element of that. I don't think it's restricted to it, but I, I do think that insofar as prudence is able to draw from you know, knowledge and good intellectual habits and, and apply them to the moral life. I do think that that is one point of connection. So I think, I think you're right about that. But I think ultimately, you know, he is getting at a kind of habit of thought here. Or we could say, I think it's, it's beautiful, he says in 11, to, to have a connected view or grasp of things. One of the things I, I just wanted to to make sure we hit here at the end as well is uh, as somebody who's helped to found a few schools um, that he hits on the point at, on starting on page 21, but this is number four in the first discourse here of just how difficult it is, right? And then I mentioned that, you know, things did not go as Newman expected. Imagine that the bishops didn't deliver everything that he hoped that they would deliver, Um and that they went too slow and that they didn't they didn't appreciate his means all the time and thought he was a little too loose with the students and all these kinds of things right uh but he really is pushing up against what people thought um about maybe you could even say the futility of this task right is this really necessary do we really need at this point in time right we have catholic emancipation there's already protestant universities out there do we really need to go through the effort, the, the expense of establishing a Catholic university in the British Isles? Is it really worth it? And, and I want to talk about that because uh, I hear that all the time, you know, that kind of attitude, right? You know, is it really worth it? Um, is it worth it? You could even say for, for me to send my kids to a Catholic school, right? Is that, is that worth it? Is it worth it for us to continue to operate these very expensive institutions? Um, He also looks at, and this is going back to page 16, um, the fact that people said that these schools were not useful enough or that it doesn't make sense to have a religious institution in modern culture any longer, right? You know, that these institutions, he said, should not be religiously exclusive, right? And that's what he's saying. That it shouldn't just be a Catholic university. Um, so I, I really appreciate you know the, him kind of ending with those difficulties because he suffered a lot for this project. Even after he left, he continued to suffer for it. Um, and and he hits on even the the whole tradition of Irish and and British monks suffering in all of their travels throughout throughout the mainland establishing these schools and being overrun by barbarians and then starting the schools again right the church has gone to a lot of effort to establish centers of learning 
is it really worth it? Right. Especially you just said, this is primarily a natural endeavor, right. To cultivate the mind. Um, and it's really hard and difficult, right? So what, why do we do it? Why, why does the church run educational institutions despite all of these difficulties? Actually, one, one comment I wanted to make um, is um, a lot of this seems to be very related to um, what, uh, what Joseph Pieper says about the, the, uh, the idea of, of, of philosophy itself, where what he says about philosophy is that, um, that you, you cannot leave anything out of it. Uh, and that includes theological questions such because that there's been this attempt to to sort of try to f- separate philosophy from from um, from religion and from theological matters. Um, and but what Pieper says is that 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 actually works against f- philosophy because philosophy has to include all everything, uh, and mm-hmm. that includes uh, religious belief or or thought and such. And I think that maybe that's sort of what Neum- Newman is talking about as well, where. The what what a Catholic university can do is it can ensure that that everything is brought in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's that's a great preview to where we're going next because that's what Newman's going to move into uh, in the coming discourses. Um, so it was really great to to be with you here for our first session. I look forward to seeing you all uh, next week. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnusinstitute.org copyright 2023 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved